You perhaps have been in a comparable situation. I, I would imagine most all of us could identify with this. You're, you're in a place that you're not used to, or at least you, the, the way to get to a particular, maybe a restaurant or a home that you don't know how to get there. And so there is a lead car that is going to take you to where you need to go. And you say, all right, we'll follow you. Oh, I bet you have stories. <laughs> and so you, you get out into traffic. First thing you want to do is just remember what that license plate looks like, to what extent that may be of any help. And you, you know the car, and so you've got to follow them. And then right away it gets interesting. They go through a yellow light, and it turns red on you. All right, what do we do? Well, the courteous person up front can pull over somewhere and let you catch up. But some of us who've been in the lead car, well, we don't think about that. Oh, my. But then we get a little further along, and they know the red light has stopped us. And they, But then, in the meantime, two, three, four cars have come up between us and the car we're following to get where we want to go. Oh, I mean, it takes a navigator here to do this. And then, to really top things off, you finally get up there, and then they take an exit abruptly. Well, you've had no lead time to do that, and I know a friend who almost had an accident because of last minute. Following someone is not easy. And never have we found, never will you find a, a person to follow who is not easy to follow. You won't find one more difficult to follow, I should add, than when Jesus says, follow me. Okay. We read the Gospels and Jesus said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. All right, well, we think, oh, that meant just getting, getting out of your fishing boat and just um, putting things aside and just go. But it's more complicated than that. The passage we're going to look at this morning in verse 34 to 38, I need to give you a little run up on it before we get to the punchline, which is follow me. You can see that, can you, at the end of verse 34. All right, just let your eye be there, but just notice what Jesus has done. Or you can just listen. I'll walk, I'll, I'll walk us up to it. Jesus has taken his disciples with him to a place called Caesarea Philippi. If you looked on a map in the back of your Bible, you could find this Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee up there at the top, and the the map of Palestine. And you would just go a little bit further north, keep going, and you'll see a little place up north of the Sea of Galilee, Caesarea Philippi. I've been there. It's really a nice place. It's a resort kind of place. Waterfalls, I mean, the water that's melted, the snow that's melted off Mount Hermon, it's coming down. It's like going up into the mountains. It, it is, the foothills. And the Lord took his disciples there for a little R&R, but it became something more important than that. Suddenly, Peter has this burst of God-given insight as to who Jesus is. And he asks the question, who, who am I? Who do people say that I am? Oh, 
And you look, you will see where he says that you are the, verse 29, you are the Christ. I don't know that that really hits us between the eyes like it should. You are the Messiah, oh, Christos, Hamashiach. Whoa, Messiah, do you know what he just said? That what he was acknowledging was he was looking at all the vast expanse of what God had revealed about Jesus Christ up to that point and brought it down to that one, that focus and said, Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah, the one of the Old Testament. Here he is. And then Jesus immediately does something that's kind of catches us off guard. He says, don't tell anybody. What? <laughs> I don't tell anyone. We need to find ways to get this out. Jesus wanted to do something, and it's, we have to understand the historical context. He wanted, he needed, he wanted them to have restraint because Messiah, in the ears of many of those who were following him, had mostly political connotations. A political champion. Who do we need one of those? I mean, there was just no one on, you know, all those presidential debates that were having in the first century. Well, they didn't have those, but, you know, all these would be, would be leaders who are going to take us out of the wilderness and give us a new day. <sighs> there was so much dissatisfaction. So people were hungry for some kind of champion. Well, Jesus said, all right, just keep a lid on it. And then Jesus begins to tell his disciples that it gives them a little look into the crystal ball. He had a crystal ball and it was, it was his knowledge of how, where he was going. And it was about a year away, actually, about 12 months away. Well, the crucifixion. You see that in verse uh, 31 where he tells his disciple in those uncertain terms, he must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed, after three days be raised again. I didn't tell him how he's going to be killed, but that does seem to be a pretty clear snapshot, doesn't it? Well, it seems to be lost on the disciples of Peter. He jumps into the deep end, <laughs> feet first, and he says, oh, no, 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 no. You can't do that. You, the Messiah, to be rejected, to be killed. And Peter wouldn't have any of this kind of response to Jesus and he did not think that it was wise. So Jesus then comes back after Peter rebukes Jesus, and Jesus rebukes Peter. Well, does he ever? And he gets body slammed. Get behind me, Satan! What do you mean? Was he incarnating the Satan himself? But he was unwittingly signing on to Satan's design to do anything he could to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Satan knew his Old Testament. He knew it to a certain extent. And so then, after Jesus rebukes Peter, then our passage. Well, what Jesus said next. For us, it's on paper. Jesus said it. And he said, and he saw, he got the multitude. He had all these people following him. And he said to his, who were with his disciples, and he said to them, Here's the scripture. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
What will it profit a man if he gain the whole world, forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Then whoever, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Now Matthew's account of this is a little different. Uh, there are some things Jesus speaks of the danger of being ashamed at his return. And, and Matthew says, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. All right, but there it is, what he said. What a jolt. Now, there is no call, no call whatsoever that exceeds the greatness of this call which Jesus gave to his disciples. Because the call entails some of the following matters. What's life going to be for you? What kind of decisions would you make? What are your standards? What are your values? What are your opinions? What are your goals? Is it your emotions? Is it the culture? Is it your family behavior patterns? Is that what determines the way you, th- you think, the, the decisions you make, just the way you run your everyday life? But Jesus Christ tells those who want to follow him that this following me means living for me. It means obeying my commandments. And it means living in total allegiance to me. Just knocks you off your feet. Now, note this also, that this call to come and follow the Lord Jesus Christ is for believers. This is not a gospel call. I don't use this in bearing witness to that person who has maybe a day to live who's dying with cancer in a hospital bed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, he or hears my word and believes on me, uh, has come to eternal life, has passed from death to life, and shall not pass into judgment. Thank you, Lord. It's a free gift. So this is a call to those who are followers of Christ. So discipleship, this, I wrote a bulletin article on this. Was it last week, week before? I can't remember. But Disciple, the word disciple, used about 180 times. It's a very flexible word. It's used of unsaved people who follow Jesus. It's used of those who are following him and who are convinced as to who he is and believe in him. And it's used of those who, to direct it to those who really, let's go on and begin to take it to increasing levels of obedience and commitment. So it has that use. Now, one of the difficult things in the Gospels, this is about difficulty, is that you have Jesus laying out things like, if you want to follow me, hate your father and mother and your siblings. Uh, you are to, uh, I don't have any place to put my head. Should you? Let the dead bury the dead. And on and on and on. And then on the other hand, Jesus says, come unto me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. All right, here, we've got to try to get some things together. 
um, hating siblings and giving away what you have? How does that fit in with coming to me, all you labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest? Ah, the rest is of the free gift of the offer of salvation. But then it, the complexity, though, goes further. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm meek and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. But those rest, those, those commands that Jesus gives to his disciples who are, who want to follow him, that becomes certainly a great, take upon me, my yoke, it's easy and light. That's an easy yoke. How do we handle these things? Well, you could just say they're contradictory. There are people who do that, say, well, the apostles, after Jesus had ascended to heaven and as the years went on, the apostles, these followers of Jesus started writing these things down and just got it all messed up. I don't go there. <laughs> That's not the way the Lord laid things out and what he told his disciples that he would lead them and the Holy Spirit would lead them to all the truth. No. There is the danger of conflating things. Ah, oh, you say then, for one to come to Christ and be saved and forgiven, then there are these duties, these commands, these things you've got to do. And if you don't deny yourself and take up your cross, then you're going to find out at the end that, uh-oh, I guess I'm not a believer. I didn't or I'm not. And conflate discipleship and put it on top of the call to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a third way to look at it. And that is context. You've heard that word? Context. You go to passages and you look at the context. To whom is Jesus speaking? How do you understand the larger, larger context of what Jesus says elsewhere? And you put things together in light of context. Now, keep this in mind when we start going through this passage, and we're going to go quick step it through it. But it's necessary to get this lead up to it, or you'll get confused. You'll be trying to witness to an unsaved person with this passage, and you're taking them off to doing what? Do you have to do works of righteousness to be saved? Remember what the, Jesus told the woman at the well? If you had only known that the gift that I have to offer you... You would have received this water of life. The gift. Last time I checked, gifts didn't cost me, don't cost me anything. Cost Jesus everything. Not me. It's free. So therefore, when we come into this place where Jesus gives to his disciples these rigorous demands and what it means to be a disciple, what he's really doing, and he's not pulling this out of the air, he's just been talking about death and life, hasn't he? Where is he going? To Jerusalem. He's going to his cross. And so, what we are to have the same mind toward death and life that Jesus had. And that what he's doing here is stating in no uncertain terms what it means if you're going to bear this striking likeness to me. The world hated him. He was a stumbling block to the Jews. Gentiles, foolishness, silly, beneath our great minds. But to those who are called, both the Jews and the Greeks, it's Christ is the power of God unto salvation and the wisdom of God. Now, are you ready to advance and walk through it? I think that there are two, two major truths that Paul said here. Let's get the first one. That the call to follow Jesus Christ is a call to death. 
I don't know any other way to put it. I wouldn't. <laughs> the scripture is clear on it. He says in the first place that the denial of oneself is taking up one's cross. And therefore, could I insert this? Let's not misinterpret this now. Let's don't make this say what it's not saying. He's not saying here, take no regard for, for your body, for who you are. Just, just don't care or be harmful, do harmful to yourself. No, 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 no. Jesus is not advocating asceticism. You know what asceticism is? Asceticism, some want to make that the rule of discipleship. That is, if you deny yourself certain bodily appetites, could be food, could be drink, could be sleep, could be sex, you deny yourself these things and you think by doing so you have greater access to God. And God looks upon you sort of like uh, proving yourself that, oh, I'm willing to do anything. Oh, I'm impressed. You did that, you did that, you did that. Come on, you're on board. No, no, no. And so he is not saying that it is asceticism. Nor is he saying that it is just putting up with certain irritants. Some people have this cross-bearing thing. It could be an obnoxious brother-in-law, uh, just or a, a husband who never listens and pays attention to what I say. Or a wife who nags me. That's my cross. He's not talking in that language here. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't have implications in those areas. But, and certainly it's not this. He's not saying that you enter into the redemptive work of Christ. That as Christ went to the cross, so we must somehow enter into our own salvation by doing kind of a penance process. And that if we can just do enough kinds of things to show that we're really serious and that we're really sorry, then we'll be forgiven. No, 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 no. For by grace are you saved through faith, not, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. All right. Now, let's go to what it does say. This denial, the denial of self is making choices. It's making the choices that are, listen, this is paradoxical, so that means you got to think about it. All right, work on that attention span right here. That it means that you make, we make choices that are in the best interest of becoming wise in the ways of God. I'll put it another way. It's the denial of the authority of self. That it's saying, let's put it this way. Lord Jesus, I am yours to command, sir. Not in a wooden kind of marionette style of life and thought, but rather it is, Lord, I love you. I want to love you more. And where you lead, I'll follow. I'm yours. I'm at your disposal. I want to do what's pleasing to you. And it's the process of sanctification. Do you know this word? It's one of our, some of our Christianese. Sanctification is that process, having come to Christ, that the work of the Spirit, through his word, begins to change us. 
over time. So it's a process. And it begins immediately, the moment, the nanosecond, you become a Christian. Now, hopefully you are in an environment when you become a Christian where you can get fed. You can get an IV right away. <laughs> we do need it. At first, when we first come to Christ, there is, whoa, there's just so much. Oh, thank you. I'm publicly saying, thank you, Lord, what you had provided for me when I became a Christian. I had a church two blocks from my house that turned out to be, in the history of 70 years as I see it, I couldn't ask for a better location, for a better church for that time and what I need. Thank you. They were serious about the Bible, serious about God. Thank you, Lord. That's a gift. So we grow, we change. That's part of it. You notice the little word gift? If, any, if anyone wishes to come after me, uh, what do you do with that if? That the if means that Jesus is not going to force you into increasing degrees of commitment to him. Well, this is where it gets messy. Uh, you know, there's the if, okay, I follow the Lord. I get a good start out of the blocks. and Then all of a sudden I meet up with some habit that I've got, some cherished, some cherished opinion or a relationship that I'm not taking care of. And I've looked the other way on that. I've harvested. So if, 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 do you want more of him? But it isn't an if of choosing an equals. It's seeing increasingly the beauty of the Lord and what he gives and who he is and say, what, what next? I'm with you. And to deny oneself, let's be sure we've got it. Just as self-effort can't save us, you're not saved and I'm not saved by any work. I'm talking about being justified before God. And the Neither is self-interest the principle by which followers of Jesus are to live. Do you get that? Self-effort doesn't bring me to justification before God. And self-service doesn't bring me into likeness to Christ. You get that? What is it? It's saying no to myself, to my hopes, my plans, my ambitions, my likes, my dislikes, and to deny myself is to, ref- it's, it's to refuse to acknowledge that my desires are more important than God's desires for me. I, w- I hope I'm making this clear. It's your desires. You're, this was a battle for me before I came to Christ. I just thought coming to Christ, oh, that means I knew enough that if I came to Christ, I'd been around church a little bit, that this meant someone else is in charge of my life. Oh, how sweet it is (laughs) to think of the one who does become the one who's in charge of my life. He does me no harm. So, do we have that? Let's take a next move here and look at the next statement. I told you that following Christ is a death march. Taking up one's cross is saying yes to God's will. What was Jesus doing? Not my will, but the Father's will. Remember how he prayed that? Not my will, but your will. As he got into the shadows of the cross, he was going to Jerusalem, bearing, taking the cross, bearing our sins in his body on the tree. And this saying yes to the will of God 
I like to put it this way. It's this sober intoxication of delight in doing the will of God. I want to please you, Lord. I want to. So, it is, it is a death march. You know, convicted criminals in that time in history, they had to do what Jesus did. Just your ordinary, everyday criminals. They had to take that implement of shame and their own death, that cross, and carry it to their place of death. So here's what he's saying. You are called to live a life that says, Lord, whatever you command, how you want me to think, how you want me to process work and relationships, all that, yours, Lord, I'm yours. So therefore, it's a way of thinking and living, emulating Christ. It's a determination to obey Christ. And when I struggle with something that's pulling me so hard, pulling me, pulling me, it's like that young man who, oh, he's been up to his ears in pornography. He comes to Christ and he's got those imprints of that stuff on his mind, haunts him and he comes and he doesn't want, Lord, what do I do to get my mind right, to get my thoughts pure? Oh, Lord, Lord. But yet, it's so alluring. It promises pleasure and relief. It gives me, oh, it's so... But then, oh, Lord, not my will, yours. God, help me. Cry out to him. Throw yourself before him. And it's saying, yes, Lord, I want to obey you. And this can come through in many other ways as well. Honesty, telling the truth. Oh, how lack of honesty and lying has worked its way to into our culture. It just almost as if this is the way things are supposed to be. And yet it's the way things are not supposed to be. Just lie. Just don't tell the truth and just <laughs> laugh about it. <laughs> what are we thinking if I want to please Christ, I want to be a truth teller. I want to be honest. If I owe bills, can I get this down to where the rubber meets the road and what it means to be a cross bearer? I have bills to pay. I have an obligation. I borrowed money from you or whomever. And I, bar- and I will pay it back. And I'm not going to not pay it back and just go on and say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Lord, I need, I want to please you, honor you. In my business ethics, sexual ethics, there will be any way, any number of ways in which being a crossbearer is going to become the occasion for mockery and, and, and ridicule. Young people, listen to me. This is not excluding the rest of the office, the audience, but young people, you face an uphill battle. You know, you've got some battles that my generation certainly didn't have to. Different kind of warfare. If you believe, think of this now. If you believe that marriage is to be between a man and a woman, suddenly you're mocked and ridiculed. (laughs) Did you ever think that day would come? I I can just tell you, my generation, we never imagined that that, that we thought of other ways. 
You would be mocked and ridiculed. But now, where are you? You ready to stand strong for the Lord? You love him in loving, kind, and generous ways. And in your own marriage, let it be evident. All right. So here we are. I like the way one writer put it. He put it this way. Our crosses come from and are proportionate to our dedication to Christ. Difficulties are not an indication of cross-bearing. Difficulties for Christ's sake are. Did you get that verb? Are. We need to ask ourselves if we have any difficulties because we're following too close to Christ. Now, you can have difficulties just because you're a grump. Or because... Uh, you can have difficulties because you get angry in traffic and you do something and you have to go to court. Don't chalk that up to being Christ's person, please. But are our difficulties because we're following Christ? But we've got to move forward. Look at the next flow here. He says, all right, following Christ means what? It means that death, a way of death. The way of death is the way of pleasing Christ. The Father's will, not mine. But the call to know Christ, follow Christ, is a call to gain through loss. Look at the paradox. That self-centered living is a loss. Losers are keepers. So to invest my life for self is a losing proposition. Let's work with this just a little bit. We got a problem here because within my own heart, before I'm saved, it's all about self. <laughs> it's just, it's just, that doesn't mean you're, you're, you're a bank robber, you're a rapist and a murderer. Potentially, we all are with our sinful hearts. But when I come to Christ, I have a new regime. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell. I have a new nature. And the desire to please Christ. But I have a battle on my hands. And the battle is within, but the battle is without. Because we live in a culture where it's all about numero uno. Number one. Now, I don't, I'm not going to give you this in an assignment. This would be a bit bleak. And it's just, if you do watch commercials, just sometimes just, Give a little intentionality if you can get away from all of the the pull. Your commercials are devious. They know they know how to get you in two seconds before you get up and go in the kitchen or go to the bathroom. They want to get you. Watch how many focus upon self-satisfaction. You owe it to yourself. You're number one. Your pleasure. All this on and on and on and on. And so we just kind of get beaten down with this. And pamper yourself. Ladies, don't they tell you pamper yourself with whatever? They have, guys can pamper themselves with that. Maybe that new truck you can't afford. <laughs> but oh, it sure looks good. I was, the other day, I was watching these F-150s go by. I was at a place, oh, you could live in that thing. <laughs> and I've looked inside and I've verified it. You could live in there. There's nothing wrong with a new automobile. But the thing is that coming to things like that, whether it's in catalogs or advertisements or legitimate needs that we do have for transportation or anything, that has got to be strained through what? 
through the fine mesh of truth, values, wisdom. What pleases you? Do I have the money? What's the best way to do this? Am I going to go into debt? Is it going to, do I, I mean, I quit giving to the Lord's work so I can have this pleasure. Do you, do you see how it gets worked and nuanced? All right, let's go. Um, I, 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 I want to say at this point that this, this paradox of loss through gain, gain through law and gain in losing, this is not, he's not giving people the way of salvation. Uh, this is not the way you're saved. This is the way you're sanctified. And I, I came across this the other day. Uh, I had it in my notes and I thought, I need to bring this back. I came on it somewhere. There was once a nymph named Narcissus who thought himself very delicious. So he stared like a fool at his face in a pool. And his folly today is still with us. That's our age. That's what we're up against. So the disciple then who finds his life is the person who has it made. You know, he says, he who wishes to save his life, what's saving your life? That means getting, what they say, getting all the gusto in life, getting all the pleasure, getting everything that you can get, making it comfortable, your pleasures, just getting it, having the good life. Whoever saves his life will lose it. It's a waste. You're a believer. You can live this way. Oh, you don't think so. You need to have walked in my shoes for about 50 years and working with Christians in counsel and discipleship and so forth. Things can get very messy. And we can get off course and get fouled up in our thinking and our motives. So we can waste life. We can waste our lives. Running after our own comforts. Wanting to be rich and secure. To have personal peace and affluence. I'm going to get my peace and security from this. Oh, a young lady, she'll say, I've got to have some security. I've had so little of it. I, my dad and I, we in worlds apart. And this young guy just showed up on my radar screen. And is he a hunk? Oh, he tells me he loves me. He gives me gifts. He does things that my daddy never even seemed to think about doing. Well, I mean, that can be good if all things are equal. And all things being equal, he's a believer. He's got a heart for God. Hey, you just hit the mother load. Thank God. <laughs> you ladies find some. But it can be deceptive. It may be that he has no passion and energy for God. But you're willing to do what? You want to save your life, see? You want to save it. You want to save it by getting that one that will make you feel better, give you security, give you the things that you didn't get. And you lose. You begin to get this paradox. It goes a little further. So so if my allegiance is to myself and not to Jesus, then I lose. So he says, go on, live, keep on living your self-centered life. Make those wrong decisions. And you then pre, you go after your own comforts as your priority to be rich and secure. But he says further, he wishes to save his life for losing. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So, therefore, I can gain things in Christ. I can gain things in him. That's why I say God-centered living is gain. And what I give up for him, I am actually gaining. And it's not a wasted life. It's gold, silver, and precious stone. 
It's to invest my life for God. It's to gain the joy of glorifying him. Look at these rhetorical questions in here in verses 36 and 37. What's the answer? You want to you play with it a moment? So what does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and, and for himself? And the answer is nothing. It's a waste. It's a big waste. And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Can you give a trade-off with God and you're going to waste your life and you're going to think that that's going to be the best way to live? Not at all. So losing my life is devotion to Jesus Christ. And what it does is that it's coming into the full potential of eternal life. Do you see it that way? I have eternal life. I increasingly am to enjoy and go to greater horizons in eternal life. And then one day I will go into the greater expansiveness of eternal life and being in the presence of Christ and enjoying him forever. You see this? It's important to get these three, this three dimension. Like I have been saved from the penalty of sin. I'm being saved from the power of sin. I will be saved from the very presence of sin. Oh, here we are then. So, what is it to forfeit my soul? It's throwing away, throwing away my life, my time, my money, my energy. Wasting, wasting the gifts God has given to me. It's missing, it's missing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. It's missing, missing. You say, is it all or nothing? No, you can settle for a little teaspoon of love but you could have an ocean of it you get a little teaspoon of patience but God will give you greater and greater amounts overflowing of you say I never believed that I could be this patient that I could be this kind that I could be this compassionate Lord I have enough of a memory to know the way I used to behave oh thank you Lord don't forfeit don't waste don't waste don't waste Gain, gain, gain through what? Gain through living for Christ. That's, that's where it comes. Now, I have to be brief with this closing statement. And it is this, that the call to Jesus Christ is a call to the kingdom. I have to, I have to be very brief here. Time won't allow me to unpack this. It's actually, it's another s- sermon, but I do want to point out the fact that in Matthew, Jesus makes much of his coming in connection with this and other passages on discipleship. That's one of those contextual issues where you're going to be, deeds are going to be, you're going to repay us for our deeds. Obviously, he's not talking about, um, well, if I do enough good deeds, then I'm, I'm in. <laughs> I'm in the presence of, I'm saved, I made it, I did enough good deeds. No, 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 no. It's that the Lord is going to assess us. Evaluate us. There are rewards, the things to be gained. Will there be shame at his coming? First John chapter two, verse 28. Not shrink away from him at shame at his coming. Like, Lord, oh, why didn't I love you more? Why was I made, oh, I made such stupid decisions. And we all do, but let's, Lord, could you help me keep them to a minimum? <laughs> Lord, can I put in just a little footnote here, sidebar, young people, you know, from the age of about 14 to about 
June 2021. That is the, the, the meter that says the potential for doing stupid things. It really gets ticks up high right in that zone there. And I'll tell you, I pray for my grandchildren, all six of them. I pray for this. Lord, keep them from doing something. By, by, by stupid now, I don't mean, well, stupid has different levels of stupidity. But uh, they can do something like just being a brat or that, I say just, that's not good. But I mean, um, don't sleep with your boyfriend. Don't get pregnant before marriage. Don't smoke weed. It's not going to help your intelligence. It certainly is not going to help your get up and go and drive and motivation. Don't do drugs. Don't, that's waste. It'll ruin you. You won't get away with it. Or, you know, get out with those kids and you get drink and you get, or you drive the car. You don't even have a driver's license. You still have your learner's permit, but you want it to show off and so you're behind the wheel and you're 15 and you get a DUI. That's what I mean, stupid with a capital S. All right, how'd I get on this? All right, I pray. Just, I love you, you, you 14 to 21, 20 year olds. I love you. And I just, if you can, that doesn't mean you're home free. Because <laughs> you, a lot of other ways, listen, they're stupid at every age of life. <laughs> I can tell you that. Even when you get into your 70s, it really takes on a different look then. <laughs> oh, Lord, help me. I want to finish well. Lord, I want to sprint to the end. <laughs> help me, Lord. And not do things that are just going to waste time and money and energy and dishonor your name. And people will look and say, that's a Christian? All right, do we have that? So the return of Christ is a time to be rewarded by Christ. I'll leave it at that. Let me tell you something uh, from my own personal, my father's history. My father was a Marine in World War II. I was always proud of that fact um, that my dad went into harm's way big time. I mean, he he went in. He, he, he took it and ended up in the South Pacific. Um, coming in on those beaches, Japanese, putting out withering firepower, mines all over the place. Uh, it's just awful, awful, awful. I mean, you're looking to your right, to your left, and your buddies, their brains are blown out. Intestines strung up and down the beach. And my dad told me once, he didn't talk about the war. Very, very much. Very little did he. But I remember once he was on one beach. I don't know if it were Guam or not. I have a picture of him. Some photographer took him, and they were coming in on Guam in July the 20th, 1944. But his commanding officer told him that he wanted him to go down the beach and get a doctor. Okay, down the beach to get. Here's one of his one of his buddies, seriously wounded, needed help to get a doctor. Mines, mines. My dad said what he did is he looked in the sand and he saw where there were footprints, and he just. Like this, all the way down, all the way back. You know, 
if when we follow Jesus Christ, there is a sense in which we follow his footsteps, his way of thinking, his way of relating to people, his what's most important, pleasing the Father, loving him. Could we do this in closing? What I'd like to do is ask you to, to bow your head and make a little, create, could you create a little prayer closet? And I would like to just walk us through some, you can latch on to one. If one doesn't click with you, go to I, ways in which I think what following Jesus would mean. And maybe you could just pray, turn it into a prayer and Work with yourself. Don't be thinking about who's next to you, whatever. But let me just walk through them. Where the head's bowed, and uh, I'm just giving you some stuff for prayer in closing. Like following Jesus means an unusual way of living in comparison to the world's way of living. Following Jesus means embracing all that Jesus has commanded. Living for others, serving others, means being fishers of men, concerned for the lost around us. Following Jesus, it could mean living among people who've never heard about Jesus Christ and enduring unsafe water, harsh weather, great distances from family and friends. It could mean that. Following Jesus means following him through suffering and persecution. Following Jesus means being financially generous for the sake of the gospel. Following Jesus means refusing to let disappointment drive Drive me away from the one who loves me more than anyone else in the world. He gave himself for me. Following Jesus means forgiving those who have sinned against me. Loving Jesus means overflowing with compassion towards sheep without a shepherd. Grant us the grace, Lord, and if there's anyone who has listened to my voice, who is without the knowledge of Christ for salvation, I pray, God, thank you for the free gift. You've said it's free. Free. Thank you, Lord. If there's anyone who needs to reach out and receive that gift of eternal life, I pray they will ask in faith to receive. And Father, we who are yours, following you, Give us the grace, Lord, alter our lives, our motives, our thinking, just the way we prioritize our day-to-day lives for your glory. Thank you for the Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.